This is the Epilog audio experience. Film is clearly a sophisticated art, possibly the most important art of the 20th century with a rather complex history of theory and practice, writes James Monaco in his book How to Read a Film. So far in our podcast, The Artists, we have had filmmakers, writers, critics, programmers from some of the top film festivals, musicians, thinkers, defining their combinatorial skills. We at Metaphysical Lab have been striving to expand the realm of our podcast, which in turn gives a wider uh, canvas to the understanding of our experiences. And also we have tied up with Epilogue Media, the podcasting network, so you can find us on their website, Epilogue Media slash the artists and of course you can continue to listen to us on the platforms that you choose from apple podcast to spotify to geosavon to google podcast everything is mentioned in the description and of course you can reach us uh, on the whatsapp number and our email id i'm your host suchita and i'm looking forward to a wonderful journey ahead with all of you Hi guys, welcome to the 69th episode of our podcast, The Artist. We're about to touch 70 episodes, 7-0. I'm like, oh my god, we are going to be heading towards a century of episodes. So exciting times ahead. We're trying to bring you content that not just talks about the creative aspects of our lives, but an overall, overall holistic growth that will help us to dig deeper inside ourselves and get something much more deeper as we go inside and take it out from our own selves and so i came across this amazing amazing book called serendipity mindset by dr christian bush that's b-u-s-c-h and how to pronounce it in german but uh, this book is called the serendipity mindset check it out it's an amazing book and it talks about how can a serendipity mindset help you live better lives so what is serendipity and what can serendipity mindset do how can we create meaningful accidents and also make accidents meaningful how can hustling culture be replaced with a serendipity culture how can a serendipity mindset overcome biases and our limiting beliefs and help us build a muscle to make the best of what comes our way this is a very very important book so it's it's something that you guys should check it out i'm so glad that we have christian with us today and we talk about how can a serendipity mindset help us in an overall development in our lives so guys help me in welcoming christian to the podcast dr christian directs the cga global economy program at new york university and teaches on purpose-driven leadership entrepreneurship emerging markets and social innovation at nyu and at the london school of economics he served as inaugural deputy director at the lse's innovation center and is the co-founder of sandbox network a global community of young innovators as well as of leaders on purpose Christian's best-selling book, The Serendipity Mindset, has been highlighted as wise, exciting and life-changing book by Ariana Huffington, founder Huffington Post. It's highly recommended by Reid Hoffman, co-founder LinkedIn. His research has been published in leading journals and was featured by Harvard Business Review, Stanford Social Innovation Review, The Guardian, Fast Company, BBC, Forbes, Goop Podcast, Wired, etc. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Christian. Welcome to our podcast, The Artist. And uh, thank you for taking our time. Uh, I absolutely loved your book, The Serendipity Mindset. 
and I just thought this was one of the very important books that the artists, our listeners of our podcast should uh, definitely go for. And uh, it came to me at a time when I was looking for a lot of answers to a lot of questions of what's happening around the world. So Christian, just to start with the conversation, how did the book come to you? How, this, how did the idea of the serendipity mindset come to you? Yeah, it's been a long journey. And, uh, you know, it started in high school. I mean, I was this kid in high school who was, uh, you know, breaking every rule you can imagine. I was kicked out of high school. I was I had to repeat a year and then I transferred this into my driving style, probably held the uh, unofficial world record of how many dustbins you can knock over on your way to school. <laughs> and then uh, one day I wasn't so lucky anymore. I smashed into four parked cars, all cars completely smashed, including my own. And uh, I won't forget the policeman who came to the scene and who said, oh, my God, he's still alive. So, you know, this idea that I was supposed to be dead stuck with me. And um, I asked myself all these weird questions. You know, if I would have died, who would have come to my funeral? Who would have actually cared? Was it all worth it? And a lot of depressing questions and answers. And, uh, you know, it put me on this intense search for meaning. And I tried to figure out what is life all about. I started reading a lot of Viktor Frankl, who has this beautiful book, Victor, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, mm. which is highly recommended, especially also for the current times. And, uh, you know, I realized that what, what gives me most meaning and what I find most meaningful is connecting people, connecting ideas, figuring out how I can initiate meaningful change by doing that. And so what I found fascinating is that on that journey as entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, community builder, and later as an academic, the most exciting purpose-driven people around me, they seem to have something in common which was that they intuitively cultivate serendipity. They mm. see something the unexpected, and then they turn that into positive unexpected outcomes. And so it's really kind of that fascination came, can we build a science-based framework for cultivating serendipity? Is there a way that we can build that muscle and then really have day-to-day -day exercises that help us to, to really build that muscle? Absolutely. Also, you know, you start your book with Obama's quotation, and then, of course, you go into this in-depth research with people from different communities the world over. Uh, and, of course, you have this uh, very close connection with India, where you talk about India in various, uh, in various situations. Tell me, Christian, in terms of defining serendipity, uh, do you think the artists, the creators, filmmakers, writers, thinkers, musicians, does the context of serendipity change with the profession? Well, what I found fascinating is, you know, it, in my research and my work around the world, um, from very low income contexts to very high, low inco uh, high income contexts, from, you know, the arts to molecular chemistry to psychology to management, what I found fascinating is that, you know, people's stories and contexts are very different, mm. but the pattern behind how serendipity emerges is essentially always the same process. It's always mm. a process of seeing something in the unexpected and then connecting the dots and doing something with it. And so, you know, if you take the quintessential situation in a coffee shop where, you know, imagine the situation where if you have erratic hand movements like I do, you spill a coffee over the person next to you and somehow you sense there might be some kind of connection with this person. You sense there might be something there. You don't know what it is, but you just have a feeling. And now you have two options, right? Option number one is you just say, I'm so sorry, here's a napkin. You walk outside and you think, ah, what could have happened had I talked with this person? And then option number two is you say, I'm so sorry, you start the conversation, and that potentially leads you know, to the person becoming the love of your life, or 
your partner or your business founder, like, you know, those kind of different things where it depends on your reaction to the unexpected that, that really shapes that outcome. And so we see that in a lot of different fields, you know, from how uh, the most amazing artists in history in a way tend to see something in an unexpected moment of throwing paint towards the wall and then mm. doing something with it um, to, you know, a lot of experiments in, uh, in, in, in science, you know, where everything from penicillin to Viagra to, um, to, to the rubber, you know, emerged unexpectedly. And so it's really um, that, that the process is, is usually uh, very similar. But what I find interesting is that then, you know, we can create more of those dots so we can create more meaningful accidents, but also we can make accidents more meaningful by connecting those dots differently. And so that's what I'm really fascinated by to say we can at every point that the, or every step of the process, we can influence it. Absolutely. And, but how would you sort of differentiate question between uh, serendipity and synchronicity? That's a great question, because in a way, synchronicity, you know, has this kind of magic touch as well, right? This mm. idea that there is this kind of magic coincidental moment, um, you know, in, in the Carl Jung uh, example, where he has a patient and, you know, he tries to talk with his patient and the patient isn't really open to uh, be advised. And then, you know, uh, one day the patient dreams about or one night the patient dreams about this kind of insect. Um, and then the next day he sits in the office of, of Jung and looks outside the window and sees this insect. And so it's this kind of like, wow, now I want to open myself because this was such a coincidence that that, mm. uh, that insect was in my dream and now I see it. And so we've all had those moments in our lives, right, where there was just this meaningful coincidence that somehow was just strange and magical and, and non-explainable. And so that, of course, happens. And, you know, there's a lot of um, kind of explanations, I guess, why that happens, because there's so many potential meaningful coincidences that could happen that it actually is very likely that one of those will happen. But more importantly, serendipity really is much more active. Serendipity is more about saying, you know, how do I, like in this coffee shop situation, see something, but then also do something with it. So mm. what is it, where does it lead me towards then a positive unexpected outcome? And so it's really more of a process versus synchronicity is more of a just singular event. Right. So, so see something and do something with it as, as well. That, that, that's, a, that's a great point. Tell me, Christian, in terms of today's culture, when you're talking about the hustling culture, where, you know, if you go on Instagram, everyone is saying just go and hustle and find your way through. And hustling can include a lot of things. It can be things which is like anti-serendipity mindset. It can be something like, you know, you're manipulating your way through things. You get, you're more aggressive. You are perhaps working with fear, as you mentioned in your book. Versus the serendipity mindset, how can we replace it? Uh, and if we replace it, do, you, do we redefine the culture the way we are functioning? Yeah, I mean, to your point, the serendipity mindset is based on the idea that you have an open mind, that you put yourself out there in a way that is, is positive and, and you, you create, quote unquote, your own smart luck, right? You create mm. your own smart luck that, that, that shapes the world. And the interesting thing is that the serendipity mindset brings together a lot of different approaches, right? So it brings together this idea that it's good to have some kind of core interest or a sense of direction or knowing approximately where we're going. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of a serendipity journal where we can write down, you know, what are my core interests or my core questions or just something that kind of guides us a little bit and that makes it easier for us to connect the dots. But then at the same time also to really say, you know, how do I essentially set myself up for whatever comes my way? And, and how do I essentially develop the humility also that the unexpected will happen? And so I'm actually a big fan of this idea that at the end of the day, 
you know, I, I'm a big fan of hard work. Um, but the, the, the idea behind serendipity is that a lot of times it requires tenacity and hard work. So it requires this kind of idea that you have to work really hard to have a lot of luck. Um, but then it's fascinating, right, that it's not about either luck or hard work or hustling, but it's about essentially you have to work really hard to have more luck. Mm, true. Work really hard to have more luck. Tell me, Christian, in terms of, you know, you mentioned in your book that uh, our role models, like we look up to the Elon Musk, we look up to Obamas, we look up to, you know, these uh, uh, Huffingtons. So when you're talking about artists and we're talking about the artistic environments, uh, you know, how can artists specifically create the serenity mindset? Uh, what are the couple of things that, you know, they can do daily besides the serenity journal, as you mentioned? Yeah. You know, I'm a big fan of a lot of times really thinking about holistically about your life. So in terms mm. of how do you... Like, how do you live your life in the day-to-day? And what are the moments that lead you to a serendipity versus those that, that hold you back? And so I'm a big fan, actually, in that serendipity journal to reflect a little bit on, you know, what are those situations in my life where I reacted to the unexpected in a way that I'm proud of, that I think it worked out really well? And then thinking about what is the pattern behind this? How can I do more of this? Hmm. But then more importantly, what were the situations where I felt I didn't react the way I could have? What were the situations where, you know, I maybe saw something in the window, but I didn't do something with it for my painting, or I saw, I had this conversation and I didn't somehow turn it into something, even though I saw there might have been an opportunity. And then really trying to figure out what is it behind this? What is the deeper psychological thing here? Is it imposter syndrome? Is it not feeling worthy? Is it some kind of self-limiting belief that is deep-seated that holds me back from having something more? And so that is the starting point, because that's really about tackling our uh, biases and our self-limiting beliefs. And then the starting point from there is really to say, okay, what are some daily practices now that I can use to have more serendipity happen? And so, for example, I'm a big fan of the hook strategy. Mm -hmm. So strategy is all about this idea that, you know, let's say you are a painter somewhere in Bangalore. Mm -hmm. Actually, that was one of the last trips, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, The world closed down was to Bangalore, which was extremely... Um, joyful, as you said, I, I have a deep uh, relationship with with India, and I enjoy going, and and uh, I'm always inspired by by by, by people in India. And, and mm. you know, I when I went last time, um, you know, imagine you're a, an artist in in Bangalore, mm. and you maybe you know would love to at some point have your art in a gallery, but you you don't have the connections yet. Then essentially, what you would do is that every conversation you would somehow try to place that information in the conversation. You would say something. Mm-hmm. Someone asks you, "What do you do?" Right, and you would be like, "Oh, like I'm a painter. I've currently been exploring X, Y, Z. But you know, what I'm really interested in is actually like portraying in a gallery. And so, you're, what you what you're trying to do here is you're trying to see the couple of dots where someone could be, "Oh my God, such a coincidence! My sister just opened a gallery. You should talk." Or, "Oh my God, such a coincidence!" Mm-hmm has been working on something similar you should collaborate the point is that we can use every conversation to see the couple of ideas to see the couple of interest areas and then the other person can connect the dots for us that's very different from just pitching to people i want to be in a gallery i need a gallery it's more about using every conversation with the uncle with the aunts with the brother of the sister of the mother you know everyone we can always see the little bit of information because opportunity comes from very unexpected sources usually and so that's mm-hmm. i think the first one to really start setting these hooks and casting these hooks and and really kind of using every conversation to to do that a little bit um, i'm also a big fan of, of really thinking about how can i consistently um you know do that for others because you know one thing is that mm. a lot of 
connectivity comes from um, others connecting the dots, right? And so, yes. for example, every conversation I have, I, I'm always thinking about, can I introduce this person to someone? Can I somehow, you know, like, is there an idea that fits, that I recently read about that fits to them? And the fascinating thing is, the more one does that, the more others do it back. It's almost like a, a karmic, you know, mm. like thing where, the more you do something like this, the more it, it does it back. So it feels both good that you're doing it and it's the right thing to do. And also then a lot of times it has like a beautiful circular effect. And so I'm a big fan of always thinking about, you know, can I connect a couple of dots here? Can I do something here? Even if it's like just an old friend, like can I ask questions a little bit differently to understand what they really need at this point, what their real motivation is at this point and really diving deeper. And, you know, that comes a lot of times to the, the way of how we ask questions. Right? Yes. Do we just ask like, oh, how are you doing? Or do we ask something like, what's really on your mind? Or what inspires you at the moment? You know, something where we can then help connect the dots for the other. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of practices and tactics we can talk about. But to me, a lot of times it comes really back to, in every conversation, we can just slightly reframe questions. And that does so much because we don't have to change any routine. We can literally do the things we anyways do. Yeah, I think I think that's a beautiful point, uh, Christian, for our listeners in terms of putting your hooks out there and let the other person connect the dots. And also, how can I connect the dots for someone, I think? And that's going to create a beautiful circular moment. It's beautiful, Christian, what you just said. But, you know, the whole system, the whole structure, you all know, functions in a very biased fashion you know like if you go in, into corporate sector if you go into a production house sector or artist sector we run on continuous conscious and unconscious biases which we are not aware ourselves so you know when when the bias can biases come christian how can we use our serendipity mindset uh, to overcome them when we are working with other people yeah well i mean it depends on which which role we're in i mean if we're in a role where we could, you know, manage people, let's say we run a small team, for example, then I'm a big fan of really kind of, in a very subtle way, bring in very small behavioral changes, because I think it's mm -hmm. one thing to kind of tell someone about a big idea. A lot of times people don't pick that up, right? Because they, they feel, oh, that's not for me, or, you know, I'm different or whatever, whatever. Versus if you start with small behavioral changes, that's usually where things start, and then people get completely into it. And so, for example, I'm a big fan of, uh, let's say you're running a small team, let's say you maybe you run a gallery or so, and you have a team of five people, and you had a plan for the year, and you have everything mapped out. And then, you know, maybe like customers want something a little bit different than you thought they want. But, you know, you don't realize this usually because you want to follow your plan. And so I'm a big fan of small things here, for example, asking in the weekly team meeting, hey, what surprised you last week? Or was there anything that was different from what we expected? And really making that part of the conversation and really getting away from the idea that it's then a failure of leadership or it's like a weak thing that something is different from what we expected and really making it part of the process to say, no, 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 no. It's a strength to realize that there's something more that people wanted and it's actually much less costly if we understand that early on. And so to give you an example, I've been working with this company in China Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they, they produce refrigerators and washing machines, you know, like mm -hmm. very traditional household things. And so they have this washing machine that's washing clothes, right? Mm -hmm. And they had farmers call them and say, hey, your crappy washing machine is always breaking down. Well, why is it breaking down? Well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in it. Mm -hmm. And so what would we usually do? We would probably say, well, don't wash your potatoes in it, right? It's not made for that. Well, what they said is the opposite. They said, you know what? That's unexpected, but there's a lot of farmers in China. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? 
And, you know, that's kind of like wouldn't have happened if people wouldn't have said, you know what, maybe our customers know better what they actually want. And maybe it's not bad that they know that better. Maybe we are okay with being surprised about it and then doing something about it. And so I think in general, you know, that's really about our limiting beliefs that we always assume we have to know everything. And, you know, especially as entrepreneurs and and, and so like we, we think we have to have it all figured out. But actually, at the end of the day, having that open mind that allows us to to shift course when it's necessary, that's really at the core of it. And so that's really, in a way, getting away from this idea of perfection to the idea of really building a muscle for making the best out of what comes our way. Sure. Christian, you mentioned in terms of, you know, be careful in terms of your role models. Who are our role models? I constantly ask this question and when it comes down to artists, we really, really aspire a lot. You know, we want to be like so-and-so. We want to be like that painter or like that photographer or like that that filmmaker who just won an Oscar. We all want that. Do you think that it can become uh, dangerous when it comes to having such high targets, having such role models and can a normal person who is going through their day-to-day activity reach those heights with the serenity mindset? Well, the thing is that I think it's extremely dangerous actually mm. to have one role model or one person you want to be like because, you know, most probably you and your authentic self will be different from that. You know, you might identify with some traits, but you know this old saying that a lot of people who were light in the world were not a light at home, for example, right? So a lot of people who were very inspiring in their work were really bad in terms of with their family. They were really bad with friends. They were really kind of, in a way, a lot of their art came from pain. It came from suffering. It came from cutting their ears off, right? Like mm. with, like if you look at the, uh, the the kind of old school painters. And and I think what what's what's important here to see is that in a way we we tend to idolize, we tend to romanticize particular artists for an amazing achievement they have and, and maybe a couple of achievements and things, but looking at them holistically, you know, do we really want to also have that kind of, you know, other parts that they might have or something else? Mm. But more importantly, I think what's really important is more what is really aligned with not only our skill sets, because skills we can build, right? But what is aligned with who we feel we can become? And and again, we can be inspired by particular traits of people. And that's very healthy, right? To say, I want to have the creativity of Michael D'Angelo. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But again, like you probably don't want to cut your ear like some of the Italians <laughs> yeah. back in the days, right? And so yeah. it's really kind of this idea of um, to be inspired not by a, only a person itself, but by, you know, picking and choosing from different people the different traits that we are most inspired by and then really aspiring towards this and saying, hey, how do I now build mastery in this and, and that allows me to get there? And I think, you know, what's what's really at the core of the serendipity mindset is to say we might think we want to be like a person but if you would meet that person in practice you would a lot of times say i've had that in my area right like i would mm-hmm. look up to people i would say oh my god they're so amazing then i would meet them and i would realize if they wrote a good paper for example it was just five phd students who wrote that paper it wasn't them the same with like a lot of people who did amazing art and other things right there was a whole team behind it sometimes there was a whole like a lot of times we don't know the context and so it's, it's really about saying, what is it about like um, um, me and myself that, that I feel I want to become, that I could become, but then also again having that open mind of saying, you know what, there doesn't need to be one best self for me. Maybe there's other areas that, that could also p- be possible. And, and so I think it's dangerous to have one fixed role model because you can usually never duplicate a person because you don't have 
the same context, you don't have the same situation. But what you can do is you can learn from how they developed some of their skills and traits and then make the best out of that. Sure. Christian, the life of artists is mostly uncertain. You don't know what's going to happen next. Like if you're an author, you don't know your book is going to get published or not. If you are a, if you are a filmmaker, you don't know where you're sort of how you're going to put your next film together. So you have this chapter which is leveraging the unexpected and, you know, creating more meaningful accidents. There's also what you've written in terms of nudging towards serendipity every day. So is there anything would you would like to add in terms of nudging towards serendipity? Yeah. Well, I mean, in general, what I would always, or what I found very uh, helpful, you know, uh, in, in, in my writing, for example, has been to always think about how could I look at this from another perspective? So when I write a sentence, could I take on another person's perspective? Can mm-hmm. I take on not only the audience's perspective, but maybe even the perspective of, the person who I want to be in 10 years, how would I think about this? Or the person I was five years ago, how, how would I have looked at this? And, and you know, this kind of changing of perspective in ourselves um, can be super useful to really kind of understand a little bit more, how could I connect the dots a little bit differently? How could I reframe particular ideas, particular streams of consciousness in a way that makes a lot of sense? And I've learned a lot from artists there in terms of thinking about that every story we're telling we can tell in 50 different ways, right? Mm, There's yes. no given way of how you tell the story. Mm. And, and I've seen that with myself. Like when I tell the story about myself, I told it very differently 10 years ago than I tell it now because it, I make sense out of it in my context. And I think what's, what's always really helpful, I feel, is to really write down a little bit like, what is it really that's the core here? What is the really core that, that I want to nudge towards? Because I think a lot of times we're nudging around but without a lot of orientation. And then, you know, after like, like, like years and years, there's no real progress. And so I think it's, it's really important to kind of nudge towards figuring out what is that kind of sense of direction that we want to have, you know, being it inspired by some kind of um, role models for others, um, but then really saying, okay, what is it that, that I can do now to, to really kind of build it um, towards that direction? And so um, I mentioned earlier, the reason why I'm such a big fan of the Serendipity Journal is because it's really about becoming clear what are these themes, these interests that I really want? And how can I, when I then write or do my art, always bring in those perspectives and those themes? Because again, like it's one thing to just be kind of, you know, I've always had that problem of being distracted and having so many different opportunities and things come up because I'm very open-minded. But having that filter, that North Star that helps us to say, no, 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 I want to write this thing. I want to look at it from different perspectives, but also be aware um, how I can channel that towards where I really want to go and um, being really important. So I think, long story short, like one of the key nudging aspects is really about be, like becoming clearer about what is it that I really want to express? What is really the story here? But then looking at that story from so many different angles to really flesh out what it could be. And it's, it's almost like a Hegelian process of like, constantly kind of having that creative friction of, of, of developing it. You spoke about uh, uh, journaling, uh, serendipity, cultivating it, nudging towards serendipity. How do I measure my serendipity quotient? Like, how do I track it? Am I on the right track? Am I, is my mind sort of getting reshaped? Is my destiny getting reshaped? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so one thing, um, absolutely. And, and that's really one thing. So in the book, um, we have a serendipity score. Yes. So where we say, you know, um, it's essentially... A couple of questions that you ask right so um in a way how do you behave in particular situations or you know in a way it gives us an idea of where your serendipity score is now 
And then you do that same exercise after a couple of months when you like do more and more exercises and then you check again. And, and what's beautiful is like how quickly you can improve because it's a lot of times. And, and I think so Jay, that comes back to what we talked about earlier, yeah. that it's not about changing your whole life and, you know, making everything different. It's mm. just about building in these kind of small things in the day to day interactions. It's about, you know, taking that one different road to this to 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 the coffee shop when you get your coffee in the morning, like or, you know, walking that one other pathway in the morning when you go to work. Because, you know, a lot of times serendipity comes from silent sources, right? From calm sources. It comes from, I talked with someone earlier who does a podcast and, you know, he got his podcast idea from going into an old bookstore and seeing an old book and saying, oh my God, like, why don't people talk about this anymore? Why did they only talk about this 200 years ago? And so, you know, it's these kind of moments where we have to allow us to have those moments by switching our routines a little bit, by opening our mind a little bit. And so it's really kind of, in a way, uh, allowing ourselves to do that. And how can we, as mass, as culture, in a bigger, uh, in, a, in a larger context, plant the serendipity, like you mentioned about serendipity bombs in nooks and corners to transform our culture to be more receptive, joyful, connected, like, how can we do that in terms of, for example, say, in politics, the way things are going right now? Uh, how can we do that in corporate structure? How can the top-down, you know, make a difference when it comes to serendipity mindset? Well, I feel especially, so when I think about a lot of the work we've been doing with governments or, mm, or companies, yeah. it's been around the question of how do you develop an environment where you work on structural constraints and removing those, right? Because mm. our our base level of serendipity is very different. I mean, I'm here in, you know, the West Village in New York. I have access to education, to networks and so on. But a lot of my work is in, in for example, Nairobi in Kenya, in, in some parts of the impoverished areas. It's it's in parts of India. It's in parts of, of China. It's like around the world where, like, there's, there's very different contexts. And in some contexts, there's very tough, I mean, even here in New York or in San Francisco, right? That, like, when you look at, at, at how inequality is, is, is systemic, and, and, you know, the interesting thing there is then to ask, okay, what can we structurally do to develop an opportunity space for people to have more serendipity? And mm -hmm. so to give an example, you know, a lot of people think about, oh, great, we just give people a scholarship and then they will have a better life. Yeah, not really, because you can put someone into a really good university, but they will still not have the same kind of serendipity potential because they might not be able to just call their parents and float an idea with them or something like this, right? So they they in a way have a very different starting position. And so, you know, when we then think about giving someone a scholarship, let's also think about how to, um, you know, give them three mentors at the same time or other things that in a way level the playing field among people. And so I'm a big fan of really thinking more holistically and systematically about how do we essentially create um, opportunity spaces for people. And there's actually an amazing mm. organization. Um, there's an amazing organization called Reconstructed Living Labs um, that, uh, you know, they, they, they started in the Cape Flats in Cape Town, and they are a great example of how you can essentially in every context develop approaches that allow people to create their own luck and to create dignity. Because I think a lot of times creating your own luck is related to dignity, right? Mm -hmm. When you're completely disempowered, you don't have any dignity. And, and then, you know, if you throw resources at people, um, people feel like, wow, uh, completely uh, indignified versus if you allow people to create their own luck by removing structural constraints, that's when the magic happens. And so in this example of reconstructed living labs, 
um, you know, they develop a low cost education methodology where they say 10 steps to use social media to build your business or 10 steps to use social media to tell your story. And then they go into local communities and they say, instead of saying, what do we need? What are the resources we need? They say, what is already here and how can we make the best out of it? And by doing this, essentially, you know, they look at an old garage and they see a training center. They look at a former drug dealer and they see a potential teacher who has a lot of social capital and who is very resourceful. And I think that approach, um, scaling that up and really kind of developing that mindset in schools, in universities, in high schools, in companies, that in a way it's about not thinking about constraints only, but thinking about how do I make the best out of the situation out of what is at hand, like it reframes it. And I think if we do that on a policy level to really listen to local communities and allow them to create their own luck because we can help remove those barriers, um, then I think we can we can have a systemic change at scale. Yeah, I think I think that's a great, great, great point, Christian. But how do we work on the bottlenecks that's going to come with the process? Because that can really tear a lot of people apart. Uh, which bottlenecks? Or uh, which? The bottlenecks in terms of, uh, you know, the government bottlenecks or the corporate bottlenecks, the bureaucracy that can come with, uh, you know, any kind of work that you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I see that a lot, in, especially in government agencies yeah. where, you know, the resistance to change is, of course, extreme, right? And mm. there's always there's power dynamics, there's vested interests and so on. Yeah. Um, one thing that I've, I found very useful is to, um, always kind of appeal a little bit to how, you know, people always people always usually have anxiety towards change because it, it means that something is changing and it could take something away from them, right? And and so so change is seen as something something threatening. Yes. But what I've seen is once we reframe that towards saying if we don't change, then we have a real problem. If we don't change then XYZ will not work anymore. If we don't change that then, you know, your job might not be there anymore, whatever it is, like that actually, in a way, innovating or not innovating, actually, is more dangerous than innovating. I found that fascinating because in a way, it's about laying out not only the benefits of, of creating something like serendipity or innovation, but also the costs of not doing it. Because, you know, a lot of times people, like it's one thing to tell people about the benefits of something, but actually then, you know, costs, like a lot of times is, is on the mind of people um, and the risks. But if we then frame it around the costs and the risks of not doing it, right? Of, yes. Of, um, that, that actually a lot of times um, um, can be effective. But, you know, being honest, I don't think there's a, there's a golden or silver bullet because it depends on the context. It depends on the respective organization. I just find it very diff uh, uh, interesting always to start with very small changes and, and on the mindset level with people um, rather than thinking that a whole ministry can change at once, really thinking about how can a team change? How can we in one team change a little bit the behavior. And, you know, I, I, I remember actually, um, so I, I used to teach in London mm. uh, at the London School of Economics and yeah. one of my colleagues there, he, uh, you know, I went to him and, and uh, I, you know, early on when, when I was writing about the serendipity mindset and, and I told him about it and he was like, look, Christian, I love you, I love the topic, mm. but I don't think I need, I need serendipity because I'm happy. I don't need any, <laughs> any things, I don't need any changes or something. Mm. And no, well, we made a deal. We said, you know what? You try two or three exercises, you know, have, like ask slightly different questions, set a couple of hooks with people and so on. And then let's talk again in a couple of weeks. So he comes back after a few weeks and he's like, Christian, I didn't know life can be so joyful. I didn't know that actually there can be so much pleasure in day-to-day -day conversations. Mm. And you know, that's actually something that, that I've seen work 
especially in tougher situations or tougher environments, that it's not about trying to push a big idea or trying to push big reforms or something. It's about trying to, in the day-to-day, -day, influence those small things, like in meetings, asking slightly different questions and, and things like this, that then allow people to after and after say, oh, wow, actually that is much more fun or interesting or joyful or impactful than, than the other way. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great, Christian. Your parting words, uh, and this is related to what we are facing in today's times. Uh, I go on Twitter and, and I see these extremist views coming from people, uh, from political parties. Any advice to the politicians out there? How can this? Uh, how can a serendipity mindset be used for them and for the world to become a better place? Well, it's interesting because <laughs> so a lot of my work has been in um, in in. Uh, in Kenya, where you have a lot of ethnic tribes, right? Mm. And so you have, you have a lot of tribal divisions and, you know, there's a lot of kind of uh, ethnic friction. Yes. And I think there's a lot to learn from entrepreneurs in that environment of how they try to develop, um, you know, kind of common denominators and common overlaps. And, uh, I, you know, I love, I love this one guy. Um, I used to work with him. He's a social entrepreneur in, in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he wanted to do business in one of the um, uh, one of the counts uh, one of the the areas where his tribe wasn't in the majority and so it means usually in some in some areas then it's tough to get a job uh, uh, it's tough to get a client in the government because essentially it might favor people from the same tribe rather than from other tribes and so you know this guy then said you know what okay I'm not of the same tribe like the governor so they will probably not give me uh, the the job but actually let me try to find another common denominator. And so what he did was he went to the church where the governor went to. He mm. sat next to the governor. And after the, the church, he, was, he, he, he talked with the governor. He said, isn't it nice that we believe in the same God? Isn't it nice that we believe in the same things? And, you know, by essentially establishing a common denominator and saying, you know what, we have something in common here. He kind of built that like mutual understanding. And I think in general, and then he got actually the job in the end. But, awesome. but the, the point here is that, you know, I'm a big believer of even in a world where, you know, there's so much narrative, so much, you know, polemicisms and stuff. But mm. at the end of the day, there's so many things that also people have in common. And, you know, a lot of times it, a lot of people, unfortunately, have an interest of playing on the fears of people and making people fearful yes. and fight against each other. Because mm. that's how, you know, a lot of times you can then get people to, uh, you know, to vote for people or to buy things and stuff like that. You know, a fear based approach. But actually, when you have charismatic leaders that want to do really well and good, like then a lot of times it's about saying, what are the real common denominators here that, that align us? And, you know, my role as community builder was a lot of times around saying, how do we build something here where we identify a couple of values that are the same? And then with all diversity, we will always come back to those core values because those will bring us together. And I think that's really what, what, what we need in this world to say, look, at the end of the day, you know, we have a couple of things in common and, and those are crucial and we need credible people who can who can do that. And I'm excited that, you know, people like you, I feel, who, who connect dots, right, who, who bring people together mm -hmm. are so important, right, because it's really about um, making sure that, that we have those kind of conversations. Absolutely. Common denominators and core values. Christian, thank you so much for writing this book and thank you so much for this conversation. And I'm sure all our listeners are going to hugely, hugely benefit out of this. Thank you so much for your time.
so guys do go check out the book the serenity mindset it might just transform your life for the rest of your life so that's it folks uh, for this episode uh, we're going to be back next week with more exciting stuff till then take care of yourself and have a great weekend Thank you.